Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here. Welcome in, we. Podcast. It is Subing America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, December 13th. 2021 people i hope everybody is doing well i hope everybody had a great weekend and i hope everybody is ready for a loaded episode of the aaron tour sports podcast college football college basketball they're colliding at once this is the place to come for all of it the aaron tour sports podcast we will open the show with a little college football the big news that we have been waiting on quinn ewers number one transfer in the portal number one quarterback in last year's high school class he leaves ohio state he announces his commitment on sunday night it is to texas we'll break it all down from there we'll do kind of maybe one of the final segments of the college football coaching carousel oregon has its man Virginia and Duke have their men, but what's interesting is the trickle-down effects at these schools that they have left. We will talk about that. From there, we'll do a little college basketball. We will start with, is Arizona the number one team in the country? I think they might be. Uh, Alabama and Houston play a thriller. Kentucky, I'm worried. I'm worried a little bit. Kentucky will end the show. Well, obviously, I'll hit on a few other uh, games from the weekend. UConn, St. Bonaventure, uh, Arkansas, Oklahoma, stuff like that. Busy show, loaded show. With that said, though, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day is the story that we have been waiting on in the college football transfer portal as Quinn Ewers. As I said a minute ago, number one high school recruit in the class of 2021. He decides to transfer after the season from Ohio State. He is being recruited as a transfer over the last few weeks. And with signing day coming up on Wednesday, he made his college announcement. Drum roll, please. He's going to... In the least surprising news ever, because I told you last Monday it was going to happen, he announces he is going to Texas, okay? And so there's a lot to get into. There's a lot to break down. Let's debate. Let's discuss. Because what I'll tell you is this. Being an unbiased guy, just following what the recruiting experts tell me, If this kid is as good as the recruiting experts say, this could be one of the biggest stories of the college football offseason in terms of the college football 2022 season. Not saying Texas is back, not saying they're winning a national championship, but the way to start getting back 
is to get caliber players of this caliber in the program who are going to attract other players of an elite caliber, which Texas got one of this weekend, a, a top offensive tackle. And so this could be the thing that starts Texas going on the right direction. Not saying they're back, but this is big. So let's debate, let's discuss again, let's talk about it, and let's start with Quinn Ewers. I kind of just told you the story, but I don't think it's hyperbole, and I did talk about it last week, so we'll just kind of hit on the bullet points really quick if you missed last week's episodes. But this is, and this isn't an exaggeration, this is widely regarded as one of the best high school football players in recent history. Not best quarterbacks, not in his state, not in his class, best players in recent history, okay? This was the number one rated high school quarterback in the high school class of 2022. He originally commits to Texas, then he decommits, announces he's going to Ohio State. Then last summer he says, you know what? I'm not even going to play my senior year, and I'm going to reclassify and go to Ohio State. Yet even after he reclassified, and even after he went to Ohio State, and even a year ahead of schedule, he was still ranked the number one high school player in the class of 2021 after skipping his senior year. So that tells you what the recruiting analysts think. That tells you what they believe he is capable of being. And if he is good as everybody expects him to be or believes that he could be, this is a total game changer in college football. Now, really quickly, in terms of the recruitment, let me just say this. Look, I said it a minute ago. I said it last Monday. It was always going to be Texas, okay? Um, in terms of the recruitment itself, this reminds me a lot of a college basketball recruitment, okay? And it's so funny because having covered both, I see things that are starting to kind of have a trickle-down effect to the other sport. But one thing about college basketball that I've noticed through the years is that there's a lot of stuff that seemingly is months in the works before it ever becomes official, right? So let's use Amani Bates as an example last summer. Amani Bates, you start to hear these rumblings that he's going to reclassify. Then he announces he's going to reclassify. Then he puts out a list that includes Memphis, Oregon, and Michigan State as his final three college choices along with the G League. And about 10 minutes later, you find out Michigan State isn't even recruiting him. They haven't even talked to him. And so why I bring that up is because this Quinn Ewers thing felt a lot like that to me, okay? I said it last week, but he goes to Ohio State. Once C.J. Stroud wins that job and uh, establishes himself as a Heisman Trophy candidate, there is no way that Quinn Ewers is staying for another two seasons to play behind, two seasons to get on the field. He's not going to beat out C.J. Stroud in fall camp next year to win that job. He's not waiting till year three to get on the field when C.J. Stroud leaves for the NFL. So you always kind of knew he was probably going to leave and once he left it feels like it was going to be Texas all along I know he put out that he was interested in Texas Tech or Pete Thamel from Yahoo did put out that he was interested in Texas Tech that he was interested in AM. I told you on Monday's show AM was happy with their quarterback room they would not pursue him I was 100% right on that and that Texas Tech thing I'll be real I know that they hired his high school coach and all that good stuff that felt like a front because they had decided as a family, as a camp, that they were going to go to Texas and they needed at least one or two more schools to make it appear as though it was an open recruitment when it very obviously wasn't, okay? And the reason why is simple. Again, 
this was the number one high school quarterback in America in a name image likeness era when he decides to go to Ohio State explicitly for name image likeness reasons. Now, I know we have some tech fans that listen to this show, watch the YouTube channel. You're going to get mad at me for saying this. There is no way one of the most marketable high school players in America, marketable college players in America with a million dollars in NIL money. He's not going to Lubbock. Okay, I don't care if you hire his high school coach and his dad and his mom as the offensive coordinator. He's not going to Texas Tech. It was always going to be Texas. They had to put up a front. And now if you think about it from a name image likeness era, it makes a lot of sense. The kid's got the look. He supposedly has the skills. If he is the guy that leads Texas back to respectability, not saying college football playoff, not saying national championship, but if he leads them back to respectability, that's the equivalent of, like, remember when Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving were going to go to New York to bring the New York Knicks back to where they were 20, 30, 40 years ago, whatever it was? This would be the equivalent of that in college football. And so it was always going to be Texas, no matter how many schools he put on his list. This was the only one that made sense. He's, of course, from the Dallas area. I think the question now that's worth asking, which is just as interesting, is he actually that guy? And to be blunt, this is one I don't think any of us can answer, right? Like, like when a, a college basketball player, even a college football player, when they transfer, you kind of have a feel because you've seen them, right? Uh, Dylan Gabriel, the quarterback at, at Central Florida, he's in the transfer portal right now. As I record, he may commit. I don't know when or where or whatever. But we've seen that guy throw for 500-yard games in college football. We know that he is capable of doing it at this level. It's just a matter of where and how good is the talent around him and all that stuff. Same with Spencer Rattler. Whatever his limitations are, we kind of know what he's capable of. We've seen him on the field. With this kid, we have no idea. Not only did he not play this year, he was hurt late in his high school career and missed a bunch of games the end of his junior year. But what I would also say is, one, recruiting uh, you know, analysts, they're not, do, they're not ranking him high for clickbait or for this or for that. They have reputations. And what they saw on the field, in camps, at 7-on-7, seven seven, leads them to believe that he's one of the best high school quarterbacks they've seen in recent memory. And the numbers do back it up, by the way. His sophomore year, how about this for some stats, his sophomore year, 4,000 yards, just under 4,000 yards passing, 3,998 3, for those of you scoring at home. 45 touchdowns, three interceptions. I'd say that's pretty good for a high school sophomore. His junior year, as I said, was a little bit injury plagued, but 2,400 yards passing and 28 touchdowns in eight games, okay? That comes out to well over, if my math is correct, about 300 yards per game and about three and a half touchdowns per game. So the kid is the truth, at least at the high school level. And now we'll see if he has success at the college level. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. And I'll, I'll say this a couple things. One, it immediately makes Texas relevant. Listen, I said one of the reasons I thought he was going to go, all those other reasons, NIL this, this, that, savior of the program. They don't have an answer at quarterback. And so he is going to step in. Again, I'm not saying anything illegal happened. I believe this was done two, three, four weeks ago, because maybe even longer, because if you remember, Steve Sarkeesian was asked about his quarterback situation during the season, and he was very noncommittal to the two guys on his roster, Hudson Card and Casey Thompson. Because of it, I believe Quinn Ewers is going to have the inside track to starting week one for Texas. And then from there, we'll see. What I would say, though, is in terms of the bigger picture, will it work? Will it not? We will find out. But what I would also say, this was a really important recruit for Steve Sarkeesian, okay? And, and I, I don't know if he's going to work. I can't promise that he is. I'm not going to say that he is. I'm not going to sit here on this show and guarantee you that he's going to throw for whatever many yards and lead Texas to 10 wins next year. And then by 2023 in his junior year, they're competing for a playoff. I am not going to do that. 
What I will tell you, though, is perception isn't always reality, but perception is important here. And it's like I said on last Friday's show, which is that Steve Sarkeesian really needed this, okay? We all know that Steve Sarkeesian, disastrous 5-7 and seven season a year ago, uh, for, not a year ago, a couple months ago in his first season at Texas, uh, just a disaster, right? You lose to uh, you lose to Kansas. You have that whatever it is six game losing streak in the middle of the year. You, you you blow it against Oklahoma. You lose to Iowa State. You lose to West Virginia. You don't make a bowl game. And what I said last week, and I truly believe, this was so important for Steve Sarkeesian because at the very least, you can sell hope going into 2022. Right? I don't know if he's going to work. I don't know if he won't. This is Quinn Ewers. But you sell hope. What's the old saying from Shawshank Redemption? Hope is a beautiful thing. Steve Sarkeesian now has hope going into 2022 because I believe that was the biggest thing working against Steve Sarkeesian coming out of this season. It wasn't the scheme. It wasn't the players. It wasn't the coaches. It wasn't Bo Davis yelling at guys on the back of the bus and somebody's recording it. It's that there was no real reason to believe that things would suddenly flip. And in college football, with the offseason as long as it is, where you're talking about it 365 days a year, you need hope going into the offseason. I talked about it a few days ago. It's why Dan Mullen was fired. It's not because the Gators went 6-6. Six and six. It's not because it's because every single thing pointed to an offseason where Dan Mullen's job status was a conversation every single day, okay? You bring Dan Mullen back, the program is trending in the wrong direction, the results are trending in the wrong direction, you're losing to teams you're not supposed to, and you're not even recruiting at a very high level. And so if you bring back Dan Mullen, there's no hope to sell going into the offseason. Well, now Steve Sarkeesian has hope going into spring ball and into 2022. I don't know if Quinn Ewers is the answer, but what I do know is that Steve Sarkeesian has a guy that he can rally around and say, this is my guy. This is the guy we always wanted. We're happy to bring him home. This is the man that is going to... Uh, he, Steve Sarkeesian won't say he's the man that's going to turn around the program, but Steve Sarkeesian uh, you know, can imply it, and we'll see if it works out the way that we think. The other big picture ramification of this commitment, and I don't think it can be understated, is that it is important to note when you have that quarterback that you believe is the future of the program that can elevate the program, it makes other good players want to play. And it's worth noting Quinn Ewers wasn't the only marquee player to announce his commitment to Texas this weekend. On top of that, Texas got a commitment from Kelvin Banks, who according to 24-7 Sports is a five-star offensive tackle, the highest rated high school recruit in the class of 2022 for the University of Texas. He was he is from Texas. He was a player that was committed to Oregon. Obviously, after Oregon, Mario Cristobal leaves, he reopens his recruitment. He ends up committing this weekend, six foot five, 300 pound offensive tackle from Summer Creek High School in Humble, Texas, the highest rated recruit that Steve Sarkeesian has signed to date. Now, maybe this kid just committed because he wanted to be a Longhorn. He was going to be a duck. He didn't know where he was going to go. But what I will tell you is a couple things. One, he had said publicly that he was planning on waiting until February to actually sign and commit in terms of his future in college football. He does it this weekend. I don't think it's a coincidence that he could be playing with a difference maker at the college level. And you start to add Quinn Ewers with some of the players that are already in the program. Now, the program needs a lot of work. I'm not saying everything's getting solved overnight. But now you got a, a, a you know potential game-changing offensive tackle committed in your class, one of the, t the, the top offensive tackles in high school football. He's rated the number two high school uh, tackle in offensive uh, high school 
offense, the number one, number two rated offensive tackle in high school football. Bijan Robinson is coming back for a year. Xavier Worthy had a good freshman year. And so I bring it up because this is the piece that brings it all together. I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know if it's not going to work. I don't know if Steve Sarkeesian is going to be packing his bags. But the one thing that he could not do is go into this offseason without anything to sell for 2022. Now he has his quarterback, and now he has at least bought himself until the fall to see if he has his guy and to build pieces around him to put this program together. I don't know if it'll work. I don't know if Quinn Ewers is the guy. I don't know how many games Texas will win next year, but what I'll tell you is this. It is a great day to be Texas. It is a great day to be Steve Sarkeesian. I told you this kid was going to Texas. This was the recruit that Steve Sarkeesian needed. All right, this is what I want to do. I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. We're going to talk a little bit more college football coaching carousel. And then from there, we'll do some college hoops. Fun weekend in college hoops. A lot to get into, a lot to dive into. I will be right back. All right, before we get back to football, I do want to welcome back our favorite sponsor and your ladies' favorite sponsor. Yeah, I'm talking about Manscaped, the worldwide leader in men's below-the-waist grooming Christmas is coming, and they have some great new gifts for the special man in your life, including, besides just the -the below-the-waist stuff, how about two-in-one shampoo, body wash? They both smell amazing. Fellas, get it. Your lady will not be able to keep her hands off of you. Ladies, you get it. You won't be able to keep your hands off your man. Here's the best part, though. If you use promo code Torres, you get an incredible deal just for listeners of the Aaron Torres pod, 20% off plus free shipping. Ladies, as I always tell you, the code works for you too. Get your man that special Christmas gift. Before we get to the body wash and two-in-one shampoo, I should mention, by the way, uh, let's get back to the the, the -the below-the-waist stuff, right? The Performance Package 4.0, which is not just the trimmer, but a bunch of other products that come with it. And here's the bottom line, fellas. We've all used the other products, and it never works out well. Nick's cut snags, awful. Don't have to worry about it with Manscaped, especially the Performance Package 4.0, which comes with the signature Lawnmower 4.0, an electric trimmer with proprietary advanced skin-safe technology to get all those tough-to-reach places. Fellas, you know what I'm talking about. The best part, it is waterproof. You can bring it in the shower. Don't have to leave a mess on the floor. Don't have to get yelled at. All thanks to Manscaped, manscaped.com, promo code Taurus. In addition to the Lawnmower 4.0, the Performance Package 4.0 also comes with the Crop Preserver and Crop Reviver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant, moisturizer, and toner. It's time to keep your North Pole feeling fresh and smelling fresh, fellas, again. You know what I'm talking about. Finally, the Performance Package 4.0 comes with anti-chafing boxers that leave your junk feeling fresh all day. As I like to say, the perfect package for your package. Beyond that, though, let's get to the new stuff because Manscaped basically, this, this winter, they said, look, it can't just be about men's below-the-waist grooming. That is really important. That's what you get the Performance Package 4.0 for. But how about above the waist? How about we keep them smelling nice? How about we get that hair feeling tingly? Well, that's exactly what Manscaped has done Uh, with the Ultra Premium Body Wash. This stuff smells good. It smells incredible. Your lady will not be able to keep your hands off off of you. And on top of that, I just mentioned your hair feeling tingly. That's the good part. They now have two-in-one shampoo and conditioner. Get it for your friends. Get it for your family. It smells incredible. It's hydrating. It makes your hair feel fresh. I am telling you, I've been using this stuff 
The ladies, well, one lady, can't keep her hands off me. You know who that is, my special lady in my life. Manscaped.com. Make sure you use promo code Taurus. Here's the last part, too, by the way. Manscaped right now, the entire website has a 20% off plus free shipping. So I do need, do need you to do me a favor. When you go there, when you get your performance package 4.0, when you get your two-in-one body shampoo, and by the way, I'll mention this. I bought the body shampoo, or I bought the body wash. I bought the two-in-one shampoo for friends, family, loved ones. It's a great gift. It smells good. Get it, manscaped.com. What I was saying was this, though, is that the the website currently has a 20% off plus free shipping promo. So make sure on that last page, when you get to checkout and they give you the site-wide promo, click out of that, then add promo code Torres so that I get credit for sending you because, again, Manscaped loves us. Torres loves you. Manscaped.com. I'm telling you, the body wash and shampoo are incredible. They got new cologne. It's not just about the waist, below the waist anymore. You get a little embarrassed. You don't want to get a trimmer. You don't want to do this. You should get the Performance Package 4.0. But if you don't want to, cologne, body wash, shampoo, two-in-one, it's great. Manscaped.com, promo code Torres. Your balls will thank you. Your body will thank you. Your hair will thank you. And most importantly, Aaron Torres will thank you. Now let's get back to the show. All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Uh, I do want to switch gears. Do want to wrap on some college football stuff. First off, thank you again to Manscaped, promo code Torres. Uh, I'm just telling you, it's not because they are a sponsor of this show. That body wash, that shampoo and conditioner is really good stuff. It cannot come highly enough recommended for me. With that said, though, let's get back to the football. And it feels as though we are finally starting to come to the end of the coaching carousel. There were three schools in Power 5 football that did not have coaches coming uh, uh, going into the weekend. All three do now. Let's break them down. We're not going to spend a ton of time on each of them. But I do think, actually, interestingly enough, all three have kind of interesting storylines that come with it. The first one. The University of Oregon. It was obviously by far the biggest coaching job available. They went out and they hired Dan Lanning, the defensive coordinator at Georgia, as their next head coach. Very interesting kind of process. On Friday's show, we talked about Chip Kelly. Was he really a candidate? Appears as though he wasn't. Uh, There was buzz that Justin Wilcox, the Cal coach who was originally from Oregon, was pursued. But he, interestingly enough, decided to stay at Cal. And so Dan Lanning, the Georgia defensive coordinator, I believe he's 35 years old. You want to feel old. How about the Oregon head coach, one of the best jobs in college football, uh, currently being filled by a guy that was born in 1986. 1986, the Mets were winning the World Series when he he was two months old. So I bring it up to just say Dan Lanning is the new head coach. And this is one, it kind of reminds me of Brent Venables getting hired at Oklahoma. And if you remember when Brent Venables was hired at Oklahoma, what I said was, this is one I don't have a super strong opinion about. And I also think it's unique to a lot of the other coaching carousel stuff that we've talked about over the last five, six, seven months, right? Um, USC, when they fired Clay Helton, had three full months to figure out who they wanted as their next head coach, to vet candidates, to figure out who was available, who wasn't, who might be interested that nobody's talking about, who they could get, who the, the, that head coach would bring as assistant coaches, who that head coach would bring as recruits. LSU, it's the same deal. You have months to figure this thing out. Even Florida firing Dan Mullen with a week and a half left in the season gives you time to kind of process and figure out who's available and who's not. When it comes to Oklahoma, they didn't find out until literally a day after their season ended with 10 wins that they were going after a head coach. And Oregon had to wait even a week later as Mario Cristobal coached in the Pac-12 championship game. And there was really no indication throughout the regular season that Miami was even going to become available. And so I know it's cliche. I know it's a talking point. 
I don't really believe that Mario Cristobal had any interest in leaving for any school other than the University of Miami or maybe somewhere in Florida. I could not, I could not see him taking Florida or Florida State with his ties to Miami. And so as it turns out, the one job that he would leave for opened. It opened late. It opened in early December, like nine or ten days before signing day, and George, uh, Oregon had to scramble. And I really do think, all things considered, they did about as well as they possibly could. Here's why I like the hire. Here's why I think it makes sense. Again, we don't know. He doesn't have the name of Lincoln Riley. He doesn't have the name of Brian Kelly. He doesn't have the name even of Billy Napier, the head coach at Florida, or some of these other guys that got hired. But there's a couple reasons why I do like the hire. First of all, Mario Cristobal elevated Oregon to even another level over the last three or four years with recruiting, okay? That was a lifeblood of the program. As I've told you many times on this show, Mario Cristobal is as aggressive of a recruiter as any head coach in college football. And Dan Lanning, of course, comes from the Nick Saban, Georgia, Kirby Smart coaching tree. Dan Lanning was actually a GA on Alabama's 2015 National Championship team, which, by the way, probably had the greatest coaching staff of all time. Kirby Smart, Lane Kiffin, uh, Mario Cristobal, whatever. But I bring it up to say that Dan Lanning comes from that that. Kirby Smart, Nick Saban coaching tree. And in that coaching tree, if you do not like to recruit, one, you probably won't be hired. But even if you are hired, you are not going to last working for Nick Saban and certainly working for Kirby Smart if you do not want to recruit. And so to me, I believe that is important. That is the reason, by the way, why I really did not like Chip Kelly for this job. I've thought about it. I talked about it on Friday's show. I tried to sell why it made sense. But at the end of the day, Mario Cristobal has elevated Oregon to a level that they were competing every single year for college football playoff bursts. They did not get there. They fell short two Novembers in a row. I get all that. But he did it by simply elevating the talent. You bring in Chip Kelly. You go outside of a guy that loves to recruit. All of a sudden, you're putting yourself in a very precarious situation. I said it on Friday's show. The Chip Kelly of 2021 is not the Chip Kelly that got hired in 2009. College football in 2021 is not the uh, not what Chip Kelly left in 2012. And so to bring him back, to, to try and bring him home, to try and recreate history, I don't know that it would have worked out well because, as I said, Chip Kelly doesn't like to recruit. And as I said on Friday's show, I kind of believe that the best, uh, the, the, best, the best roster that he would have inherited would have been his first one next year and his second one the year after, and I think he would have had trouble maintaining it. Dan Lanning, I don't know if it'll work. I don't know, what, but I, the one thing I do know, he will recruit, he will be relentless, he will be dogged, he will hire a staff that likes to recruit, and I think one that's important because that's the culture that was established under Mario Cristobal, it is what allowed this program to elevate to a fringe playoff contender every year, go to the horseshoe, beat Ohio State in Columbus, and on top of that, I also think the Pac-12 is really changing, and I think that's an important element of this too. If Mario Cristobal was going to stay, had Mario Cristobal stayed, he was going to have to work that much harder to continue to recruit at the level that he was at Oregon simply by Lincoln Riley's uh, uh, arrival, right? Like, Lincoln Riley's arrival changed everything in the Pac-12, and I don't think that can be understated. I've talked about it over the last three, four, five. I've really talked about it over the last two, three months after Clay Helton got fired. People have viewed Southern California is one of the best recruiting bases in the country, and it has been a free-for-all as USC has continued to struggle. Alabama's come in and got dudes. Clemson's come in and got dudes. LSU's come in and got dudes. And Oregon, probably no program benefited more from that than Oregon. Uh, and it's going to be a lot harder to recruit there now that Lincoln Riley is there. He's already got the two top players in Southern California committed for 2023. He just picked up a big commitment for 2022. The number one cornerback in the country is down to Alabama and USC. And it's trending, I believe, more towards USC. 
And so with Lincoln Riley there, it changes everything in recruiting in the Pac-12, and you need a guy that is going to go out and recruit his butt off in this conference and in this footprint, and I do believe Dan Lanning will, will be that guy. Again, young, dynamic, relatable. I think that's important in a way that I just don't think Chip Kelly would have been any of those things. The other thing that I think is interesting, he has a defensive background. And to me, that's especially interesting given the other coaching hires in this conference this offseason. We know about Lincoln Riley's background. One of the best offensive minds maybe in all of football, independent of college or professional. This guy's put you know multiple Heisman Trophy winners, other Heisman finalists. Now he's coming to the Pac-12. By the way, Washington, Kalen DeBoer, their new head coach, a, an offensive mind. And so that is why I find this interesting is that Oregon kind of went the opposite. They said, we're going to get a defensive-minded head coach and we're going to try to zig when everybody else zagged. And I don't know that I hate that philosophy, again, given everything um, that happened over these last few days. In terms of why it might not work, listen, uh, you know, there's no great insight here for me to tell you. It's the obvious stuff. The guy is 35 years old. This is his first head coaching job. And in a perfect world, you want your first head coaching job to be somewhere where you can make mistakes, where you're not going to be on this big, huge, massive stage for all to see. Well, now he's walking into one of the most high-profile programs in the Pac-12, probably one of the 10 best rosters in college football next year, and he's walking into a roster that was built to compete and potentially make a college football playoff and potentially win a game or two when they get there, certainly at least win a Pac-12 title. And I think that's a lot to ask of a first-year head coach who is coming from outside the program, doesn't know the players, doesn't know the conference, doesn't know the program, doesn't know anything. Speaking of which, that second part that I just said is pretty important too. This guy, outside of a couple years as an assistant coach at Arizona State, really has no real background in the Pacific North. It has no background in the Pacific Northwest and really has no background in the Pac-12 footprint at all. And so to me, it's what we talk about when Brian Harson went to Auburn. It's what we talk about when Brian Kelly is going to LSU. It is sometimes hard for guys to come from outside of a region that have never been there and have success in a place where, um, you know, other guys have been there for a lot longer and are going to continue to have success. And so those are really my only opinions on them. You know, again, I know you come to this show for big, strong, bold opinions, but I think given where Oregon was at, um, it will just be very, very, very interesting to see uh, if this program can continue to stay at the level that it was and if Dan Lanning is kind of the head coach that we expect him to be, again, young, defensive-minded guy, going to be very interesting. There were two other jobs that, that were open going into this weekend. I want to talk about the less high-profile one first because to me there's an interesting sub-story here, and that is Duke, which hired Mike Elko, who is uh, – Mike Elko was, I should say – the defensive coordinator at Texas A&M over the last couple years. He was one of the highest paid defensive coordinators, one of the highest paid coordinators in college football at over $2 million per year. And Mike Elko took the Duke job. And so to me, it's interesting for a few reasons. Now, I will say, and I tweeted this out when it happened on Friday, I am not ultimately all that surprised by this. I was actually tipped off by a, a good friend kind of around the A&M football program like, dude, we might lose Mike Elko. And I said, lose him to where? Like, is he going to be Brian Kelly's defensive coordinator? Is he going to be Ohio State? Like, what is he? What's going on? They go, he might take the Duke job. I said, he might take the Duke job. Are you crazy? Uh, you know, my, my, my perception from the outside, and I've never really asked about Mike Elko specifically or anything like that, but my perception on Mike Elko was always kind of the idea that 
you know, was that he was a, a really, really, really well compensated defensive coordinator and that it was only going to be a really, really, really good job that got him to leave. Almost like a Brent Venables. Brent Venables was at Clemson forever. Turned down job after job after job, interview after interview after interview, waiting, 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 waiting. Then Oklahoma comes along and Oklahoma's finally that job that you can't say no. Kirby Smart. I know we're kind of questioning Kirby Smart right now coming into the playoffs. So many questions. What's going to happen in that big game? But Kirby Smart, look, that guy, say what you want about him. He had a million chances to leave uh, Alabama after he was the defensive coordinator there forever. Kept waiting, kept waiting, kept waiting, kept waiting, kept waiting. And all of a sudden, Georgia opens up and you think, oh my goodness, this guy waited for Georgia. Good for him. He got the Georgia job. Now we'll see if he could put them over the top this year as they enter their second playoff of the Kirby Smart era. And so the Mike Elko thing was just surprising because I didn't think this guy was leaving unless it was really a... You know, not an AAAAA plus job like, um, you know, USC or or Alabama or something. But, you know, I didn't think he was going to leave for Duke either. I mean, Duke, I know it's in the ACC, but it's it's not an easy job. And don't let what David Cutcliffe did there fool you. But one of the best defensive minds in college football is off to the ACC where Mike Elko is going to be the head coach at Texas A&M. And so I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about it, but it's interesting for a few reasons. One A&M has very much established itself as one of the best defenses in all of college football under Mike Elko, top 20 nationally this year in terms of total defense. Then in terms of scoring defense, in terms of the points allowed per game, they were even better. They were one of the best teams in all of college football this past season with Mike Elko leading the charge at Texas A&M. They only allowed 15 and a half points per game, which was third nationally behind only Georgia and Clemson. So kind of an interesting element there. How about that? In a sport that is dominated by offense, the top three defensive coordinators in college football statistically, George's Dan Lanning, he bounces, Brett Venables bounces, and now Mike Elko bounces. Three, uh, the three best defensive coordinators in terms of points allowed are now head coaches. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, one, where Texas A&M goes, two, how it affects them on the field. But I think lastly, and this is important, National Signing Day is on Wednesday. And Texas A&M is closing in on potentially, when it's all said and done, the number one recruiting class in the country, okay? I don't know if they get there, and I don't think they will come out of Wednesday with the number one ranked recruiting class in the country. Remember, there are two signing days now, the early signing day in December and the late signing day in February. But what I would say about it is that right now, Texas A&M has 21 commits. They have four, four, four five stars committed right now, which is more than Georgia, more than Ohio State, and more than Alabama. And so Texas A&M right now has the number three recruiting class in the country, and there's a legitimate chance that they end up with the number one recruiting class in the country. But what's interesting is your defensive coordinator leaves just a few days before National Signing Day, and it's really interesting to see if they can hold on to everybody. Obviously, the top player in this class is Walter Nolan, a defensive uh, lineman from the state of Tennessee who is committed to Texas A&M. What impact does that have? What does uh, Mike Elko leaving have on his decision? What impact does it have on some of their other guys? They just flipped a guy from Oklahoma, was committed to Oklahoma. Now he's going to Texas A&M. Does that change with, uh, with Mike Elko going to, to, to Duke? So we're not going to spend a ton of time on this Duke coaching hire, but I do think it's very interesting just from that perspective of what impact does it have as we get towards National Signing Day. All right, last little college football coaching carousel topic as it does feel like we're finally starting to get to the finish line with some of this coaching carousel stuff. Uh, I mentioned coming into the weekend there were three head coaching jobs available at the Power 5 level. All three are now officially filled. 
Just talked about the first two. Oregon was open. It is now filled by Dan Lanning, the defensive coordinator at Georgia. Duke was open. Mike uh, Elko, the defensive coordinator at Texas A&M, fills that job. And the third one is, I believe, maybe the most interesting in terms of a talking point or a conversation, not so much because of who was hired and what the school was, but instead because of what it means for the program that they left. That person, that school, it is the University of Virginia. If you remember, Bronco Mendenhall, longtime college football head coach. He was at BYU forever. Then he goes to Virginia. He was there about four or five years. He announces a few days ago that he's leaving the program. Don't know if it's really a retirement. It didn't really sound like a retirement, but he was out. And over the last couple of days, Virginia was looking for a new head coach. Well, they found their guy on Friday as Tony Elliott, the former offensive coordinator at Clemson, has announced that he is going to be the next head coach at Virginia. First of all, let's talk a little bit about him, his background, all that stuff, because I do think it's interesting, but again, I do think it's more interesting from the Clemson perspective. First of all, in terms of Tony Elliott, I mean, he is one of those guys, I just said it a minute ago with Mike Elko, that I truly believe was waiting for one of those elite coaching opportunities. He, he has been at Clemson for a very long time with Dabo Sweeney, kind of in the role that he's in as kind of the play caller, offensive coordinator. He was a co-coordinator for a while, but he's been at Clemson since two 2011 elevated to the the co-offensive coordinator in 2015 became the offensive coordinator last year when Jeff Scott left in 2020 and so I bring it up because this is a guy that has been around the program for a while has had opportunities to leave and I believe up until this year was really kind of waiting for that perfect job kind of figuring you know what if I'm making good money at Clemson if we're winning a ton of games if everything's going well I am not going to rush to leave for a head coaching job because I got a real good deal here at Clemson. I do think the calculus for that changed, though, because while Brent Venables, while that defense was awesome at Clemson over this, the course of this season, even as Clemson struggled, we all know about the struggles of the offense. And I'm not blaming Tony Elliott. I'm not saying it's his fault. A lot of it was on DJ. But I do think that Tony Elliott was kind of one of those guys that was waiting, waiting, waiting for the right opportunity. And he realized, if I come back, I just had a disastrous year this year in 2021. The offense was abysmal. Yes, it did get better over the course of the season, but it was still ranked 95th nationally by the end of the year uh, the the passing offense was ranked 103rd nationally and he kind of said if I come back next year well guess what our best wide receiver Justin Ross is gone DJ Uyla is still going to be my quarterback I Aaron Torres am not crushing DJ Uyla but I think Tony Elliott kind of looked at the situation and said you know what if I come back and we have another year like that offensively I do not see the scenario where I might I or, let me take that back. I don't want to say the scenario, but there is a scenario where he might not have opportunities to leave Clemson. And so I think he kind of struck while the iron was hot. So he's the new head coach at Virginia. Really interesting. Uh, the offense, obviously, it had a ton of success up until late last season when they stopped being able to run the ball. They lose in the playoff and then a complete disaster this year. But why I bring it up is because I don't think it's necessarily interesting from Virginia's perspective. OK, uh, Virginia football, not a big topic of conversation on this show. I do think they, they did pretty well with this guy young guy dynamic guy 42 years old offensive coordinator play caller uh good recruiter all that stuff so I like the hire from Virginia's perspective but to me I think it's actually more interesting from the Clemson perspective and I'm certainly not the only one that's going to say this over the next couple days or over the last couple days but this to me I, I would argue this Clemson has been one of the most stable, dominant programs in all of college football this year. And to me, this is the most interesting, fascinating offseason of Dabo Sweeney's career. Because on the one hand, yes, when all was said and done after that awful season that Clemson had, they still finished 9-3. and three. But on top of that, 
you can also see a scenario where two things could happen. One, they could just get back to being who they are. Clemson, way more talent than everybody else in the ACC, win 11 or 12 games in the regular season next year, go to the college football playoff. You could also see a scenario where the foundation of the program was starting to crack this year and it completely falls apart this offseason. When I say completely falls apart, I don't mean they're going five and seven next year, but the the what the run that they were on at Clemson over the last six, seven, eight years, you could say that this year was the beginning of the end. And why do I say that? The reason I say that is pretty simple. Clemson has been a program that through the years, the one thing that Clemson has had that so many other, maybe no other program in college football has had is stability, okay? Nick Saban, we talk about it all the time. He's replacing coordinators and head co- and assistant coaches constantly. Kirby Smart gets a head job. He brings three or four guys off his staff. Steve Sarkeesian gets a head job. He brings three or four guys off his staff. To me, what Nick Saban does, the most incredible thing Nick Saban does, it's not recruiting, it's not game day coaching, it's his ability to replace assistant coaches without missing a beat that's absolutely incredible. I mean, think about all the offensive coordinators that Nick Saban has gone through in the last decade. Uh, Jim McElwain, who walked out the door to go to Colorado State, ended up in Florida. Uh, Jimbo Fisher, at one point more than a decade ago, was his offensive coordinator. But recently, you had Lane Kiffin. Lane Kiffin leaves. You have Brian Dable. Brian Dable leaves. You have Mike Loxley. Mike Loxley leaves. You have Steve Sarkeesian. Steve Sarkeesian leaves. And guess what? You still produced a Heisman Trophy winner with Bill O'Brien this year. And so to me, it's been incredible what Nick Saban has done. But Clemson has kind of taken the opposite approach. Dabo Sweeney, it's a family environment. The Clemson family, we're all in. Um, And he, I think, has very smartly been strategic about who he hires, but then also how he takes care of them. And the one thing about Clemson's program that is very kind of well-known in football circles, Dabo takes care of his assistant coaches, okay? Brent Venables was one of the highest paid defensive coordinators in college football at a time I believe he was actually the highest paid coordinator in the sport. Uh, Tony Elliott was very well paid. Uh, He does a good job, Dabo, of making sure that they take time off during the season. They spend time with family. They have family in the, the, the football facility. And so what Clemson has been able to do with Dabo Sweeney, they have this insane track record of being able to keep all of their assistant coaches and along with being in the ACC, which stinks, along with recruiting at a level that nobody else in the conference is, the thing that they have been able to do is keep stability within the coaching staff and so nothing changes and so year after year after year same coaches same system player whatever and that's a really big deal and so why this Tony Elliott situation is so interesting is because this last two-week period is unquestionably the biggest shakeup in recent Clemson football history okay think about everything that has happened Dabo since 2000 what did I say since 2015 He has had Tony Elliott as his offensive coordinator. I know there was another guy there named Jeff Scott who was a co-offensive coordinator. And then in terms of Brent Venables, let's never forget that Brent Venables has been uh, Clemson's defensive coordinator since 2012. So he had his defensive coordinator since 2012. That's nine years. He had his offensive coordinator for six years. Well, in this offseason, think about what happened. His offensive coordinator just left, took the head coaching job at Virginia. Brent Venables, the defensive coordinator, left took the head coaching job at Oklahoma, and oh, by the way, his athletic director, uh, I forget the guy's name, Dan Radovich or something like that, just left the program as well. And so you go from one of the most stable programs in college football, two two coordinators there for six plus years, athletic director, I don't know why I keep tripping over that, AD there since, you know, there basically your entire tenure. Now all of a sudden you have to replace the two most important assistant coaches that you have. On top of that, your boss is leaving for Miami. And so I just think it's an incredibly interesting time. 
in a lot of ways, again, I go back to basketball. A lot of stuff I do is a cross-reference between college football and college basketball. But college basketball, we see, we're seeing something kind of similar at Gonzaga, where Gonzaga, for years, stability, for years, the same coaching staff. Then what happens this offseason? Tommy Lloyd, Mark Few's top uh, assistant coach, leaves for the Arizona coaching job. We're going to be talking about Tommy Lloyd in a minute because they might be the number one team in the country. Uh, on top of that, his athletic director retires, and so Mark Few is going through transition, and I think Dabo Sweeney is going through the same. What's especially interesting, though, is it's happening with all of these other changes in college football, and Dabo Sweeney took some heat this year. Remember, Dabo Sweeney is the only coach that I know of that has not signed a single guy in the transfer portal. He just refuses to go into the transfer portal. He says, look, this is how we do things. This is how we recruit. When you commit to us, you don't take any other visits. We don't take transfers. We're not going to recruit over you. And I think it's a very humble, honest approach. The problem is, and I talked about this during the regular season, Clemson has hemorrhaged players this offseason and during the season and last offseason. I mean, you look across college football, Darian Kendrick, cornerback, was at Clemson, leaves for Georgia. I know he was thrown off the team, so it's a little bit of a different deal. But Ches Malusi, Wisconsin's best running back, was at Clemson. Uh, Florida, I believe, had a couple guys from Clemson. Uh, Minnesota had a defensive tackle from Clemson. Over the last couple weeks, a few players have left. Lynn Lin, uh, Lin J. Bowden, uh, what's his name? Lynn Lin, Lynn J. Dixon. Lynn J. Dixon is the guy. Just left, signed at, Wisconsin, uh, signed at West Virginia. And so I bring it up because Dabo has been hemorrhaging players for, for a long time now. He's not going into the transfer portal. He's already under a little bit of heat. And now on top of that, on top of that, he has to go out and get a new offensive and defensive coordinator, all while a new AD is going to be coming in at Clemson. And so there's already rumblings that the coordinator positions are going to be coming from within the program, that Dabo is going to elevate guys from other roles into the offensive and defensive coordinator roles. But I'm just telling you, it is absolutely fascinating. And again, I, I, I just think it's going to be interesting because this Clemson thing could go one of two directions, right? Nine and three means one of two things. Either you had a real off year and there's so much talent that you're going to bounce back, go 11-1 or 12-0 and make the playoff again next year. Or this, this, this year showed the cracks in the foundation and now with your top two coordinators leaving, uh, it could be a sign that things are only going to get worse going forward. But an interesting thing to follow at Clemson. All right, I can already feel this show is going to be a long one. So I want to take a quick break. I want to come back and I do want to talk college hoops. Is Arizona number one in the country? Uh, what else? Alabama, Houston, oh my goodness. And then, of course, we're going to talk a little Kentucky, which lost to Notre Dame. Yeah, no, I got thoughts on that. I'll be right back. All right, everybody, I am back. Final time today. Good to be back, good to be back. And I do want to switch gears. I do want to wrap with what could end up being a pretty lengthy college, uh, college hoops segment because this was really the weekend. Like, if you, were, if you are a college hoops nut, like, this was the weekend that you had your moment in the sun because uh, I, we all get how this works, right? Is college football is always going to take center stage in a normal year, no COVID, no this, no that, in November and December. We have the, the rivalry games. We have the, the late season push for the playoff. We have the conference championship games. And this was the first real weekend where there was really no real college football to speak of. We had Army, Navy, and it's no disrespect to all the, the men and women who serve for our country, but, but it's not the same as Auburn, Alabama, Michigan, Ohio State. In terms of football, in terms of football, in terms of importance, it takes obviously a much greater importance. We had the FCS playoffs, but really there wasn't that major college football stuff that you had to follow, that you had to know. And so we finally got a little college basketball, and we got just a loaded college basketball weekend. 
And so in my opinion, I think there were four major storylines that came out of this weekend. We're going to talk about all of them. Uh, I will hand on a few other games at the end. Like I'll talk a little bit about UConn St. Bonaventure and Arkansas, Oklahoma. But to me, there were four major storylines that came out of this weekend. I'm going to start with what I think is probably actually the least interesting one. But how about those Baylor Bears? And and this is one I want to be quick on because I, I don't think there was a lot of meat that came out of Baylor beating Villanova 57-36. Yes, you heard me correctly. Baylor came into the game as the number two team in the country. They were hosting Villanova in Waco, and the final score was 57-36. First of all, let me say, I think Baylor holding Villanova to 36 points is about as impressive a statistical feat as anybody has had in college basketball in recent memory. Villanova is an incredible offensive team. Baylor held them to 22% shooting from the field, 22% shooting from three, 12 total field goals in that game. For comparison, Ben Matherin dropped 30 points for Arizona on, on Saturday. He had 10 field goals. Villanova had 12 field goals as a team on Saturday and so that shows you how dominant Baylor's effort was and I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because I don't think there's a ton to make out of it but why I bring it up is this Baylor came into the weekend as the number two ranked team in all of college basketball this weekend of course Purdue if you remember lost on Thursday we talked about it on Friday's show and so with that Baylor is going to go to the number one team in the country next week are they really the number one team? I don't know. I put out my top 10. I would have Baylor at number one in the country. I think you could actually make a case for Arizona. I think there's a little bit of a case for Duke. I think there's a little bit of a case for Alabama. But to me, I think Baylor is the number one team in the country, and they're probably deserving. That's not really why I want to talk about them, though. Why I want to talk about them is because something struck me as I was thinking about Baylor going to number one in the country this week. By the time you listen to this show, Baylor will be number one team in the country. This will be the third straight year that they will have be the number one team in the country at some point in the season. Obviously, last year they reached number one late in the season after they beat Gonzaga in the national championship game. Gonzaga was number one for most of the year. But the point is, Baylor was really good and the season at number one in the country. The previous year, if you remember, Baylor was number one in the country for about seven or eight weeks in the season as they went from November to February without losing a game during the 2020 season. And I think Baylor would never say it, but the, the 2020 cancellation of the NCAA tournament was maybe a blessing in disguise because that whole team came back, won the national championship last year. But I bring it up for this reason. Monday will mark the third year in a row, almost certainly. I don't know for sure as I record that Baylor is going to be the number one team in the country, but I think they're going to be the number one team in the country. It'll mark the third year in a row that Baylor is the number one team in the country. On top of that, Baylor just won its third Big 12 title in football a couple Saturdays ago under Dave Aranda. Dave Aranda is the third different head coach to lead Baylor to a Big 12 title in the last decade. Art Bryles did it, Matt Rule did it, and of course Dave Aranda did it a few weeks ago. You add in the fact that Kim Mulkey, before she left for LSU, won three national championships as the Baylor women's head coach. And I'll just tell you this. I'm a guy that grew up watching college sports in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Baylor's rise as a power in basically every single sport is about as unprecedented as anything that you could possibly imagine. I grew up watching, uh, watching college sports in the late 90s, early 2000s. Baylor was essentially the equivalent 
of Vanderbilt right now in football and men's basketball. I can't remember how their women's basketball was 15, 20 years ago. I am telling you, Baylor was the worst program in the power conferences in football and men's basketball for basically the first 10 or 15 years that I remember watching college sports. Then, of course, Robert Griffin III gets there in football. He helps elevate that program. Art Briles takes it to another level. Matt Rule does the same. Dave Aranda. And, of course, in basketball, Scott Drew, this has been a slow and steady build over the last 15 to 18 years. I think he took over in 2003. But I bring it up to say, this is one of the most unprecedented rises that I can ever remember in college sports because you just had to be there in the 90s and 2000s. I don't remember the early 90s. I don't remember the 80s. But to see where this program is now, it's absolutely incredible. That's really my only major takeaway. I'm not going to sit here and break down Baylor's, uh, uh, you know, man-to-man defense and they're switching this and they're, I'll tell you this, they're a really good team again. I don't know if they're the definitive number one team in the country. I will say one thing though. When I do where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong on Wednesday, you know I'm going to be talking about Baylor because I thought they were going to be good. I never thought at any point in the season they would be the number one team in the country right now. So that's the first big topic. Let's get to the second big topic. Because I do think that while Baylor is the number one team in the country, I also think you can make a legitimate case that the Arizona Wildcats should also be in consideration for the number one spot in the country. Arizona went on the road this weekend. I will say crazy travel conditions. I don't know all the details, but I heard it was crazy travel. I heard at times it was unsafe. They had to take Ubers to Champaign, Illinois. They landed in wherever, Indianapolis or whatever, had to take Ubers to Champaign, Illinois because they could not take a bus. They go to Illinois, really good team, maybe not an elite team. They go to Illinois and they win. They beat the Illini. Final score, 83-79. And let me just say this. I don't know if Arizona is the definitive number one team in the country because I don't think there is an obvious definitive number one team in the country. But as I said on Twitter on Saturday, and I I should mention, by the way, we've started all the team-specific Twitter accounts. We launched Torres on Arizona earlier this weekend. So if you are a college uh, sports fan, one, we have individual Twitter accounts for all of our major teams. We have Kentucky. We have Tennessee. We have Arkansas. We have Alabama. We started Torres on Arizona this week. But I bring it up because, as I said on Twitter, I said, I don't know if Arizona's number one. I don't know where they're going to be ranked. I don't know who's number one. They are as impressive of a team as I have seen in college basketball this year. They have everything. Size. They're one of the biggest teams in the country. Super lengthy. Super athleticism. Two, three guys that are definitely going to play in the NBA, including a guy that I believe will potentially be a top five pick in the NBA draft this year. They're well coached. Spacing, shooting, scoring, rim protect, everything that you need to win at the highest level in college basketball, Arizona has it. I believe you can make a case for them as the number one team in the country, even though I ultimately believe Baylor will get it. I believe Baylor probably deserves it. But Arizona is for real. Arizona is legit. They beat Illinois the other day. And what I'll tell you is this. When I look at this program right now and when I think of their success, I think their success is really owed to two people. And the first one is, we have to give Sean Miller some credit for where Arizona is right now, okay? So Arizona, we all know what's happened off the court, and I've talked about it a million times on this podcast, and I've defended Sean Miller because I think he got a totally bad rap that was totally unjustified based on the facts that we have. But Sean Miller in the process basically at one point couldn't recruit American kids, okay, because... 
American kids were reading all these stories in FBI and NCAA, and I'm not going to play in the NCAA tournament. He couldn't get kicked. So this is what he did. He went out and recruited as well internationally as anyone in college basketball. And a couple of years ago, he signed what was, I think, the number one or number two class in the country in the high school class of 2020. And the guys that he brought in are now thriving at Arizona. Okay, first of all, I mentioned that I believe they have a guy that's going to be a top five pick. His name is Ben Matherin. I just mentioned him a minute ago. Ben Matherin's a superstar. And first of all, he is a great story in his own right. Six foot six wing. He's originally from Montreal, Quebec area, or at least Quebec. Um, played high school ball at the uh, one of the uh, NBA academies. But this was a kid. I remember talking to somebody at Arizona last year, and they told me, they said, look, this is a kid. He could go to the NBA right now, maybe be a second round pick, maybe be undrafted, sign as a free agent, whatever. And he knew that he wasn't ready. And even though there were agents and there were people in his ear trying to get him to leave college, he said, look, I'm not ready to go to the NBA. I'm not ready to be a professional. I'm coming back for a second year of college basketball. Why do I bring it up? He is a great success story on what happens when you decide to come back, when you know you're not ready, and when you bust your butt to be a college basketball superstar that will eventually be a very well-paid NBA player. And that's who Benedict Matherin is. I call him Ben Matherin, whatever. Uh... This is what he's doing this year. 18 points, 7 rebounds, 2 assists, 1 steal, shooting 38% from 3. And he was the best player on the floor on Saturday against Illinois. Illinois has Kofi Coburn, All-American, great player, transfer portal. Ben Matherin was the star of that game. 30 points, as I said, 10 of 17 shooting. He had 10 field goals made. Villanova had 12 as a team on Sunday. Uh, five three-pointers made. This guy's a star. Future top five pick brought in by Sean Miller. On top of that, the second best player on the floor I thought was Kirk Carissa. Uh, uh, Kirk, 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 uh, I thought the second best player on the floor was Kirk Carissa, the point guard who also Sean Miller brought in from Estonia, named after Steve Kerr. This kid was phenomenal, and he just did everything right. He made all the right plays. He finished with 19 points, 8 rebounds, 5 assists, beautiful pick and roll, just kind of knowing where to go, where not to go, where to put the ball, how to set up his teammates, when to take the ball himself, when to pass the ball. Like, he was just awesome. Also, Asulis Tubelis, uh, 16 points, 8 rebounds. He's probably been their second, uh, you know, second, third best player this year. He's averaging 16 and 7. Christian Coloco, another player that Sean Miller brought in, has been phenomenal this year. He did not play great on Saturday, but he did have 7 rebounds. He had a couple big blocks on Kofi Coburn as well, but this kid has been awesome as he went from averaging five and four last year to 13 and seven this year. And we now have an Arizona team that is one of the most explosive, dynamic, offensive teams in all of college basketball. Uh, even following the Illinois game, this is a team that is averaging 91 points per game. And so it's a big credit to Sean Miller. I think we have to give Sean Miller credit for putting together the pieces that are making this team a success. What I would also say is, you know who else, who else I think we have to make a, a, a big credit to? Is the new head coach, Tommy Lloyd. Because I always say this in life, and I always say this in, on this podcast, and I always say it in sports. Two things can be true. And what I can say is, I could say Sean Miller got railroaded. I could say Sean Miller didn't deserve to lose his job in the manner that he did, that things were made up, that the stories that came out have been proven not to be true. But what I can also tell you is this. I do not believe that this team, this group of players could reach this level of success with Sean Miller as its head coach. That's not a knock on Sean Miller. That's not he's a bad person. That's not he's a this. That's not he's a that. 
But the bottom line with Sean Miller is he was a defense first coach. The offense was, uh, you know, I, I don't know how to describe it. I don't know what would be the appropriate words. But this was a team that averaged 75 points per game last year. Uh, much fewer possessions. They did have James Akinjo, who's actually ironically at Baylor right now. But with Tommy Lloyd coming in, I think it was a best of both worlds. Um, Sean Miller recruited this amazing dynamic class, which ironically, this is the incredible part, ironically, almost all international players. Well, guess who is the international guru whisperer? It's Tommy Lloyd, the guy that recruited all the international players to Gonzaga. And now he comes in, he kind of brings this spacing, three-point shooting uh, offense, this beautiful European-style offense where it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to watch. And so it's one of these weird things at Arizona where I just believe, maybe for one year, but the stars align, where Tommy Lloyd inherited an insanely talented group. A group that would probably be a... T I, listen, I had Arizona in the top 10 of the preseason before Sean Miller was fired last year, and then I dropped him because they lost some players via transfer portal, whatever. But I bring it up to just say, it's this perfect thing where Sean Miller brings in all these players, and I do believe to reach their full potential, Tommy Lloyd's the guy to do it. And I don't think it was intentional. I don't think all these Arizona boosters were sitting there saying, well, let's we have all these great players. Let's get rid of Sean Miller and bring in a guy that's going to accentuate all their gifts. But what I am saying is it's the perfect coach at the perfect time. And I believe Arizona, like I said, I think you can make an argument that legitimately they are one of the certainly five best teams in college basketball. I think you can make a case that they should be or could be number one in the country. Prior to the Illinois game, the win at Illinois, they also won against Michigan earlier in the season. They beat Wichita State, and they did win their Pac-12 opener on the road by 35 points at Oregon State. I'll tell you this about Arizona as well. Very interesting road coming up. Uh, they play Northern Colorado this weekend, or this week, excuse me, but then a couple days before Christmas, they play at Tennessee, which should be a really exciting game. Then over the New Year holiday. They play UCLA on uh, December 30th at Pauley Pavilion. That might be a game I try to get to. And then on January 2nd, which I believe is a Sunday, if my math is correct on the top of my head, they play at USC in what should be a really fun game. But Arizona, very deserving uh, number two, number three, number four team in the country. I don't know where they'll become the new poll. I would have them at number two. They are awesome. The last positive note so we talked about Baylor we talked about Arizona the last game I want to talk about really quick is Houston and Alabama and I talked a ton about Alabama on last Monday's episode after they beat Gonzaga so I don't want to spend a ton of time but what I will tell you is this man Saturday night Coleman Coliseum Alabama Houston was one of the great games of the season and really just a great tactical war that resulted in this crazy play at the end. J.D. Davison, freshman superstar for Alabama. Some call it a goaltend. Some don't call it a goaltend. It definitely was not a goaltend, by the way. But it ends with Alabama with a one-point win over Houston in what I believe. Listen, I was at Duke-Gonzaga. This was as good of a game as we've had in college basketball all year. And so really quickly, I just want to talk about both teams. First of all, Alabama, I don't know what else to say. And I, I'll tell you this, uh, even to backtrack. Alabama fans, if you're new to this show, one, go back and listen to last Monday's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast because I talked a lot about Alabama's win over Gonzaga in that game, on that show, I mean. But I bring it up to say this. When I was watching this game, this is what I realized. Remember early in the season or in the preseason when Nate Oates said, I got to be honest, 
I think I actually overscheduled. Like, I think I put together too tough of a schedule. They played in that Old Spice uh, ESPN Events Classic in Orlando. Obviously, last week they played Gonzaga in Seattle. This week they play Houston at home. This coming week they'll play Memphis. They'll play Colorado State, which is a really good team. And then they will play Baylor later in the year in the Big 12 SEC Challenge. And so Nate Oates basically said, like, look, I think I put together too tough of a schedule, but I bring it up because I have not talked to Nate Oates about this friend of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, but I bring it up because I believe that Nate Oates did something brilliant. I believe that he scheduled all of these different teams that play all of these different styles with the intention of getting ready for the NCAA tournament. Because come NCAA tournament, whether Alabama's a number one seed, which I think they might be trending that way, whether they're a five seed, whether they're a seven seed, whether they're a 10 seed, which I don't expect them to be, what Nate Oates did was in the out-of-conference, he scheduled every type of team that you could possibly face in the NCAA tournament. So no matter who Alabama plays, they'll be ready for it. Think about it. They played Gonzaga last Saturday in Seattle. Gonzaga is speed. We just talked about with Tommy, Tommy Lloyd. Speed, athleticism, pushing the pace, uh, quickness, shooting, spacing, three-point shooting, rim protection with Chet Holmgren. But it's finesse. It's European. It's more this. It's more that. Then you play Houston which is just a bunch of absolute junkyard dogs, okay? I mean, Houston is the meanest, roughest, nastiest team in college basketball. They own the offensive glass. And so, one, I give Alabama absolute credit for winning this game, even at home, under the circumstances. Because I did wonder, Alabama, they like to push pace, they like to shoot threes. Are they tough enough to beat Houston? Oh, they're tough enough to beat Houston, okay? I watched that entire game minute-to-minute, wire-to-wire, one, in terms of toughness, Alabama, um, you know, Alabama, I thought, despite being kind of the smaller team, held their own on the boards. Now, look, Houston is going to to win the battle of the boards against everybody, but I thought uh, Alabama was really tough. I thought the kid J.D. Davison, who I mentioned a minute ago, was super tough on the boards with nine rebounds, ten points in that game for a guard that is absolutely unbelievable. Juwan Gary was awesome for them, a front court player. But what stood out to me more than anything, It's not just about this game, okay? Alabama fans, I know you're coming to this show looking for, okay, with three minutes to go, Nate Oates did this and this is what it meant. To me, it's not about that. To me, it's about the 30,000-foot view of what did this game mean and why was this game scheduled. It was scheduled because if you want to win a national championship, you might have to beat a Gonzaga on a Saturday uh, in the Sweet 16, or on a Thursday in the Sweet 16, and then you might have to beat a Houston on Saturday to go to the Final Four. You might have to beat Gonzaga in the national semifinals in New Orleans at the Final Four, and you might have to beat Houston to win a national championship. And so, again, I haven't talked to Nate Oates about it, but I believe that he scheduled this game knowing. I want my team to be prepared for anything. Physicality, toughness, speed, size, athleticism, quickness, whatever. By the way, this coming week against Memphis, they're going to seek something completely different. Memphis is a mess. I've talked about them, but Memphis is tough. Memphis is physical, and I think it'll be another test for Alabama. The only other thing I'd say about Alabama that really stood out to me in this game What I'm most impressed by is two things. One, everybody thinks about Alabama as this offensive juggernaut, and I think they are. Their defense was really, really, really good on Saturday. And to me, that really strikes strikes. And something I actually have talked to Coach Oates about on this podcast is the idea that um, is it you know that we spend so much time on the offensive side with Alabama that I don't think they get enough credit for how good they are on defense. I thought they were phenomenal on the defensive end. Uh, And the second thing that really stood out to me is this. Alabama is quickly becoming a couple things. One, like I said, 
They are becoming, and I said this on last week's show, they aren't just a good a good team, right? I talked about it last week. Um, last year, they win the SEC regular season. They win the SEC tournament. Sweet 16 appearance. But I said on Saturday, last Monday show, I said I believed that the win over Gonzaga was as, was as important as any win that Nate Oates had because it proved that they are not a one-trick pony. They are not a one-hit wonder. This is not a good team from last year. This is a good program. And this win only further validates that. But what I would also say is this. This is what stood out to me about Alabama. Just about every single player that returned from last year's team has gotten better. And I, I don't think we can undersell that, right? Like, Jaden Shackelford was this team's leading scorer last year. Averaged 14 points per game. Averaged 34% from three. Well, now he's averaging 19 points per game, 46% from three, seven rebounds per game. He has gotten significantly better. Javon Quinterly has gotten significantly better. Jawan Gary has gotten significantly better. You go down the list. This is what a great program looks like. Not a great team, a great program where players come in. They get better year over year, um, you know, whatever. And so that was what stood out to me. I give them a ton of credit. As far as Houston, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. One, obviously, look, the coaches overreacted at the end of the game. It was not a... Uh, Field goal. It was not a uh, goal ten, excuse me. But I give Kelvin Sampson and Kellen Sampson, his son, credit. They both apologized. They both said they overreacted. I love Houston. I still have Houston in my top ten. I'm not holding it against them. I don't believe that they are some inferior team because they lost by one point on the road in an absolute war against Alabama. But that was a really, 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 really fun game to watch, and I give Alabama a ton of credit for getting that win against Houston. All right, last little college basketball topic before we get out of here. And, uh, you know, we've talked a lot of positives on today's Aaron Torres podcast, especially as it pertains to college basketball. We've talked about how awesome Alabama is. We talked about how awesome Houston was, even in that loss that they deemed controversial, even though I don't think it was all that controversial. We talked about how awesome Arizona is and how awesome Baylor is. Now it's time to, unfortunately, talk about the other side and a little bit of negativity as it pertains to to the Kentucky Wildcats. We talked a ton of Kentucky last year. You guys got mad at me. Torres, you talk too much about Kentucky. Well, this historically great program, the best program in the last decade under John Calipari, went 9-16, and so of course I'm going to talk about them. But they have an offseason of upheaval. They changed the coaching staff. They changed their recruiting cycle. They go ahead and get a bunch of, of, uh, of transfer commitments. They're signing a really good class in 2022, and it's been nothing but positives here for about the last four, five, six, seven, even eight months dating back to last season. Why do I bring it up? It is because after Kentucky lost to Duke in the season opener, it's kind of been quiet, and we haven't really talked about them, at least until this past Saturday, and of course, this Monday episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. That is because on Saturday, Kentucky played the first real team that they've basically played in about five, six, seven weeks since that Duke season opener. They lose 66-62 to a bad Notre Dame team, and a lot of Kentucky fans are frustrated. A lot of Kentucky fans are wondering if this is last season all over again. So let's get into it and let's talk about it because this is kind of a really big topic and a really interesting topic as we head towards the last few weeks of the out-of-conference portion of Slate into the conference portion of Slate. Uh, and really, with Kentucky, I I'll say this. I go back to even that opening night against Duke, and I give Kentucky fans a lot of credit. Last year was frustrating. Last year was angering. Last year was disappointing on so many different levels. But to their credit, I thought after the Duke game, everybody stayed mostly calm. I saw a lot of Kentucky fans say, look, 
They got the number one pick in Paulo Bancaro. They have a really, really, really talented roster, and they have a team that we probably won't see anything equivalent to them for most of the rest of the season, at least until the NCAA tournament. And so Kentucky fans stayed calm. To Kentucky's credit, they take care of seven straight teams in the non-conference before they get to Notre Dame. Of course, none of those seven teams were any good. We'll get to that in a minute. And then Notre Dame happens. Then they go on the road, and they lose in a game that they not only lost to, but won. Notre Dame simply isn't very good. They came into this one 3-4 and four overall. Losses to St. Mary's, losses to Texas A&M, losses to Illinois, and lost last week to Boston College. So that's one. But two, it was a loss that looked eerily similar to everything that happened last year. And I think that's where the frustration comes in. So let's talk about it. Let's break it down. Let's discuss what needs to be fixed. And I'll tell you what I think the single biggest problem is that maybe nobody's talking about. And so let's start with the game itself. Again, final score, 66-62. And listen, first of all, credit Notre Dame. Listen, they needed this one. Their back was against the wall. They've had a tough early out-of-conference schedule, which, again, we'll talk about in a second. But they were the better team on Saturday. And and this wasn't a vintage performance from Kentucky, but part of it was Notre Dame. So let's give them a little bit of credit. But really, this is about Kentucky. In terms of Kentucky themselves, I think the only real positives that came out of this game, uh, their starting center, Oscar Sheepway, is awesome, okay? And he was a guy that came over via the transfer portal from West Virginia. And I'll be honest, I really just kind of thought that he was like this banger, low-post, monster Hulk uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, Coach K once called him a machine, and he's not a machine. He's awesome. like, he he is a guy that I kind of just thought was just this low post monster, and all he was going to do is get second chance points, rebounds, blocks, whatever. Saturday, he showed off a complete game, and he is playing like an SEC Player of the Year caliber candidate. Not only is he leading the country in rebounding, but Saturday he showed off a diverse offensive display of not only putbacks, rebounds, second-chance points, but he showed off some jump hooks. He showed off a mid-range jumper. He showed off some great footwork in the paint. And so if you're looking for any positive from Kentucky, it is the fact that Oscar Shibway continues to exceed expectations at all levels. I would also say on top of that, Keon Brooks, another returner from last year. I'll be honest, I kind of have a soft spot for Keon Brooks, in my opinion, because I thought that last year, in a year where Kentucky needed some leadership, he was one of the few guys that seemed to be willing to step up and kind of uh, you know provide leadership in what was otherwise a disappointing season at Kentucky. So I give Keon Brooks credit. He was also very good. The problem is, outside of those two, Basically, nobody showed up to play for Kentucky, okay? Uh, outside of those two, nobody had more than eight points. Outside of those two, they combined for 40, uh, 37 points out of Kentucky, 62 points. I'm not great at math, but that tells you exactly how the day went for Kentucky. And what, what, how the day went obviously was disappointing. And as you look back, I think a lot of the frustration with the fans comes from the fact that, again, a lot of the same issues from last year popped up Issues that we weren't really sure if they were resolved because Kentucky, again, has played seven non-power conference teams since that Duke game. First of all, three-point shooting was atrocious. Kentucky last year was one of the worst three-point shooting teams in college basketball. On Saturday, they finished two of 19 from three. Now, some of it is, look, good shooters were missing wide-open jump shots. Davion Mintz, who was their best three-point shooter, their best player last year, finished uh, struggling from the field. He missed a couple of wide open ones off the bench. He goes 0 for 5 from 3. Uh, on top of that, Ty Ty Washington, a really good freshman, again, did not play well. Severe Wheeler went 0 for 2 from 3. Kellen Grady, the only player that hit any three-pointers at all, uh, and he went 2 for 7 from 3. So some of it was problematic in the fact that guys just miss wide open threes that really probably won't miss them for the rest of the year. 
But I think it's really interesting that this team that was basically built around spacing and three-point shooting this offseason continues to struggle shooting threes. And what was interesting was I saw an article from my old buddy, my old colleague, Zach Gagon at Kentucky Sports Radio, where Saturday was not the outlier, okay? Saturday was actually the trend of this season as really since the second game of the year, Kentucky has not shot the ball very well from behind the three-point line. And coming out of that Notre Dame game, they are shooting about 31% from the three-point arc, which, oh, by the way, is actually lower than last season. So you go into the portal and get Kellen Grady. You go into uh, the recruiting uh, uh, out uh, space in, in the high school rankings and get Ty Ty Washington, one of the best shooters. Obviously, C.J. Frederick, another good shooter, gets hurt. You bring back Davion Mintz, and you still can't hit three-pointers. That's problematic. That's one thing that I do think will get better as the season goes on. But at this point, look, you know, we're eight games into this thing. That's that's a quarter of the way through the regular season. At some point, something stops becoming a coincidence and starts becoming a trend. And the trend is this team still, for whatever reason, whether it's what's going on at practice, whether it's game, whatever it is, can't make threes. On top of that, and I think this is the bigger frustration with Kentucky fans, after last season, John Calipari promised, look, we are going to modernize our offense. If you remember last year, I think I talked about it a lot, but Kentucky, they, they went with kind of this old school, too big approach, and they're great at the rim, and they're great rebounding, but nobody can shoot. And all of a sudden, you have these lineups out there where you have a seven-footer uh, and two guys that are 6'9 or 6'10", and uh, nobody could shoot. And and you look at teams like Alabama. You look at teams like Arkansas last year with the with uh, you know the penetration, the kicks, at, the kickouts, the spacing. The teams that are having success at all levels of basketball. Uh, I know it's a bad day to talk about Villanova, but that's basically how Villanova's built their program. It's how Baylor built their national championship program last year. It's how Gonzaga has built their program. And we could criticize Gonzaga, but they have been probably the most successful program in college basketball outside of maybe Villanova over the last five years and so when you look at it Kentucky fans were frustrated looking at everybody else in college basketball saying wait a second now why is everybody else surpassing us in terms of style of play in terms of what they do and on Saturday after John Calipari spent six seven months promising us that things were going to change it kind of looked the same listen what did I tell you to, to lead this segment the two best players for Kentucky were Oscar Shibway and Keon Brooks for people who don't know uh, Kentucky's uh, um, Kentucky's lineups and, and roster those are two power forwards that really don't shoot threes. Keon Brooks has worked on it in the offseason, but Keon Brooks, to, to, to his credit, as much as I like him, will never be mistaken for a three-point shooter. Um, and so on top of that, you have the fact that you still have those two guys out there. You have these weird lineups where the pieces still don't really seem to fit. Calipari is still trying to figure out what to do with the pieces on his roster. And look, I will say, like, that's a lot of college basketball right now. Not every coach knows exactly what is going on. With Not every coach knows exactly what the, the perfect lineup at the perfect time. That's just not realistic in college basketball right now. But again, I just bring it up to say, Kentucky, for four, five, six months now, we've been being told that this offense was going to look different. It was going to feel different. It was going to spacing, three-point shooting. And it's much the same from the previous two years. And so there's a lot of frustration with Kentucky fans. There's a lot of frustration with how they look. There's a lot of frustration with the results. What I would say, though, is I think there is one big problem that really stood out to me that I don't think is being talked about enough as it pertains to Kentucky. And it's actually probably the simplest thing in the world. I just don't think that they scheduled well enough early in the season to put themselves in position to be comfortable in a game like this, let alone what is coming up in the upcoming weeks with the top 20 team in Ohio State, Louisville, and of course, SEC play going forward. And what do I mean by that? 
What I mean is it's pretty simple. If you just go back to the game on Saturday, think about how Kentucky looked and put aside what you, you thought coming in about spacing and three-point shooting and this individual player and this and what does all, all of it mean. Go back and think about that game. And what I would say about that game, didn't Kentucky just look a step slow to you? Like Notre Dame is not the most athletic skilled. They're not Alabama. They're not Houston. They're not Baylor. Like the, Notre Dame is not the most skilled or athletic team. But didn't Notre Dame just look quicker, quicker to loose balls, quicker to closeouts, quicker to closeouts at the three-point line? Didn't Kentucky just seem a step slow? Well, yeah, that tends to happen when you literally haven't played anybody all year. And so when I look at Kentucky, listen, I love John Calipari. He's a Hall of Famer. But this guy is still scheduling like it's 1992 and you play one or two big games in the out of conference. You beat up on a bunch of tomato cans and you go into conference play. That is simply how it doesn't. It's simply not how it works anymore. And you start to look at just look at what Notre Dame did in the out of conference. I mentioned it earlier, but they have already played in the Maui Invitational where they played Texas A&M and St. Mary's. Two pretty decent teams. They're not even great teams. Decent teams. Okay. On top of that, they played Illinois in the Big Ten ACC Challenge. On top of that, they opened ACC play earlier this week against Boston College. That is essentially three power conference teams plus St. Mary's. And what I would say, that's not even really like a loaded schedule relative to what some other teams have played. Remember, uh, Alabama played in that Orlando conf- uh, that Orlando tournament where they played Iona and they played Miami and they played all those teams. They already played Gonzaga. They already played uh, Houston this weekend. They're going to play Memphis. They're going to play Colorado State. It's not as though Alabama hasn't played anybody. It's not as though they're not prepared. Same with this team. Same with that team. And you look at Kentucky. Look at who they have played since that Duke game. Since that Duke game, this is the list of teams that Kentucky has played since they played Duke earlier this year uh, in the season opener at the Champions Classic at Madison Square Garden. After the Duke game, they played Robert Morris and Mount St. Mary's and the University of Ohio and Albany and North Florida and Central Michigan and Southern. And I know that some of them were good-natured in spirit. Southern, you know, you're trying to work with the HBCUs, create awareness. That's great. I have no problem with scheduling one-off games with bad teams, but I do think that at some point you need to schedule a little bit better to have your team prepared for the games that matter, and these are the games that matter. And so it's so funny because I I had Kentucky fans say to me, well, we scheduled too tough last year, and look what happened. And if you remember last year, Kentucky essentially played one bad team at the start of the season, Moorhead State, who actually ended up making the NCAA tournament. Shout out friend of the Aratora Sports Podcast, uh, Preston Spradlin. But after that, they basically played all power conference teams the rest of the year from beginning to end, okay? So what when Kentucky fans say, well, Tours, we overscheduled last year, and look what happened. There has to be a balance because when you play six, seven, eight bad teams in a row, it doesn't get you ready to play for conference play. It doesn't get you ready to play for the marquee games at the end of the out-of-conference like the CBS Sports Classic this weekend, like Louisville uh, in, in about 10 days from now. And so what does it really accomplish? I'm not saying you can't play one or two of those games, but you have to be able to balance other teams in so you can be better prepared for a game like this. And so when I look at this game, you mean to tell me you couldn't get a a bad Big East team at Rupp Arena? You couldn't get a a good A-10 team? You couldn't get a bad Big 10 team to come to Rupp Arena for a one-off game? You could have done some weird neutral... But like the bottom line is these games, one or two is good to fine-tune, but at some point you have to have games to get you ready. I would say on top of that, I think it's really interesting that this game against Notre Dame came following a week in which we found out that Rupp Arena 
whatever they've been reporting as numbers of tickets sold is not reflective of who is showing up to Kentucky games, okay? And so now we're kind of getting into the weeds on Kentucky. Kentucky's got a little bit of an attendance problem, okay? Rupp Arena holds 20-plus thousand. They've been bringing in about 10,000 people per game, which is clearly a reflection that the fans are not very happy with the home schedule. And so again, I'm not saying that you have to play only power conference teams. That's not what I'm saying at all. And I do understand that other teams can schedule in other ways for other reasons. John Calipari thinks his teams are going to be young. He wants to get them confidence. He wants to work on things. He doesn't want to stress. But at some point, you do have to pick things up because I just don't think you can go five weeks without playing anybody and then walk into a game like this and expect to have success against what is, again, ultimately a bad Notre Dame team. I mean, think about if Kentucky had played a good team. Think about if they played a good Big Ten team, a good Big East team, a good SEC team. Uh, you know, most other conferences are playing conference games right now. Can you imagine if Kentucky had had to play Alabama on Saturday or Auburn on Saturday or LSU on Saturday or Tennessee on Saturday? I can't even comprehend because they could barely, they, they lost to a bad Notre Dame team. But again, I think it comes back to when I watched that game, they just looked a step slow, uh, lacking confidence. Notre Dame looked a step quicker, and Notre Dame is not the kind of team that can do that. So what I would say going forward with Kentucky um, – I'm not yet worried, okay? I, this is this is the, the big picture thing. I would not say yet that I am quote unquote worried. This is not I'm not ready to say we're going nine and sixteen, fire Coach Cal. That is not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is this week against Ohio State's kind of a big game, right? Because you have the Duke game early, it happens. You do what you're supposed to do, which credit to Kentucky. Seven wins, all double digits after that Duke game prior to Notre Dame. But with that said, you now have actually kind of a big game against Ohio State because you don't want to go into the Louisville game on a two-game losing streak. And it's a big game because you got to show that you're ready to play. After Louisville, you got one game, and then it's SEC play from there. Actually, I take that back. It's not even one game after Louisville. You open SEC play against Missouri uh, following that Louisville game. And so to me, I think this Ohio State game this weekend in Vegas, I will not be there, unfortunately. Some of you have asked. If you're going, hit me up. I can get you some kind of advice or whatever. Um... But I just bring it up to say, I think this is a really important game. I have not given up on Kentucky. But when I look back on that game, they just looked a step slow, sloppy, not prepared, not ready to go. And I think that's a reflection of five straight weeks where they haven't played anybody. A couple other results from college basketball. I don't want to spend too much time on them. First of all, shout out to my alma mater. Uh, UConn played St. Bonaventure, neutral site game. Obviously, I'm pretty high on UConn. Uh, it goes without saying I picked them to go to the Final Four. I think I'm the only one to do so. But they got a really nice win against St. Bonaventure. And for people who do not know, can, uh, uh, UConn, I would argue probably their two best players, two of the three anyway, Tyrese Martin and Adama Sonogo. Adama Sonogo is the big guy who had a great week in the Bahamas at the Battle for Atlantis. They are both out with injuries right now. And so UConn went to West Virginia on Wednesday, lost a game by one point, but then on Saturday they played a good St. Bonaventure team, and St. Bonaventure was missing a key player on their part as well. But UConn took care of business, UConn got a win, and I thought, considering that you're down two key players, and then maybe their, not even maybe, their best defensive player, Isaiah Whaley, was in foul trouble, I thought it was a great effort overall from, uh, from UConn, so good win by them. Oklahoma against Arkansas. I know everybody, oh, Torres, you always talk about Arkansas. Listen, they look sloppy. They look bad. They were kind of in the same boat as Kentucky. They played in a, a pre-tournament early against uh, Cincinnati and against uh, Kansas State. They won both of those games in dramatic fashion. And I just think, look, this is what happens. You know, sometimes you go four or five weeks or three weeks or whatever it is without playing anybody or without playing the best of competition. 
uh, you come out. I thought Arkansas actually, they made a nice little run at the end of the first half. Oklahoma was better prepared. Oklahoma has probably played more marquee games. They were coming off a loss to Butler, so they looked ready to go. I'm not really worried about Arkansas. This isn't like something I need to spend a six, eight-minute segment talking about. Arkansas will bounce back as we get ready for SEC play. Also, shout out to Oklahoma with Porter Mosier. Uh, shout out to my Kansas Jayhawks. How about my Jayhawks? Caw-caw, caw-caw. Remember, they're my preseason national championship pick. They destroyed Missouri in the border uh, the border war. They call it the border war. Like I said, we can't be calling it a war anymore, not the way that Kansas did it. So Kansas looking really good. Uh, and yeah. I think that's ultimately it from this weekend. Busy weekend, fun weekend. That's it for today's episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Uh, Before we get out of here, fun week in terms of guests, okay? So uh, actually, you know what? I'll save that for later this week. I don't want to spoil anything, but we could have one to two big guests, one to two, one marquee guest that you'll definitely know, another one that I definitely think you will enjoy. Uh, But that's it for today's show. So before we get out of here, I want to remind you, make sure you're subscribed. Aaron Torres Pod, uh, it's in the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Apple, Spotify, Google Music, Amazon Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you're subscribed. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Uh, Also, those social media accounts are popping. If you have a team that you follow and that you love, uh, I mentioned it earlier, but Torres on Arizona launched this week, Torres on UConn, Torres on Indiana, UK, Torres on uh, what else? A lot of other ones, Arkansas, Alabama, whatever. Make sure you're following those team-specific pages for your teams. Uh, And that's really it. That's really it. Uh, Thank you again to Manscaped, promo code Torres. Remember, you got to click out of the site-wide Uh, the site-wide promo and type in Torres. I've done it. I've used it. So go ahead and make sure to do that as well. But that's all for today's show. I'll be back later this week. Fun week. uh, Good week. A lot lot of interesting stuff that's going to pop up. We have National Signing Day on Wednesday. We'll obviously recap that. We'll preview that, all that good stuff. So really fun week coming up. But as I said, that's all for today's show. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I will be back on Wednesday with another episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.